I asked uh, Keith to come up here and pray because uh, I know he's comfortable with it. And there's probably just a few people that are comfortable coming up here and doing it. Joe always says when he comes up, I ask him to come up here, he starts sweating automatically. Uh, but it's not because of his ability to vocalize prayers just standing in front of people. But I would bet if I went around the room and said, uh, who doesn't know how to pray, there would be people in here that would raise their hands. That they don't know how to pray. In fact, let me ask you this question. Uh, How many of you grew up or went to church where you had some kind of a book or form where you said your prayers. You read your prayers. Raise your hand. Like it was just, it was there. It was written. And this was, <clears throat> this was what the disciples experienced in Pharisaic Judaism. All their prayers were written out. And the Pharisees actually just read their prayers. And so the disciples, they grew up under the Pharisaic teaching, the Jewish teaching, and they also just read their prayers. And so when John the Baptist came, he didn't read his prayers. Like he spoke to the Father. And it was just all impulsive. Just having a conversation. And then Jesus comes along and he does the same thing is that He doesn't read his prayers. He's just having a conversation with God. And the disciples have watched both John the Baptist and Jesus do this. And now they're like, we want that. Forget the rote prayers, but we want that. So we pick up in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and it's verse 1. He says, he was praying in a certain place. We don't know what that place was. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John also taught his disciples. The John there is John the Baptist. John the Baptist had disciples. In fact, he discipled them and uh, he, he baptized them. That's how he got the name John the Baptist because he actually had disciples that were following. John came along to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so, because they believed in what John was teaching, they actually got baptized to say, I identify with what John's teaching. And so now, uh, the 12 men that are sitting around Jesus go, we want to pray like that. And then, here's the issue, is we've already discussed this once uh, in this series Back on uh, May the 28th, and I tell you that for a reason, is so that you can go back and just like listen to the podcast about the Lord's Prayer because we discussed it in Matthew chapter 6, which was part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where the actual Lord's Prayer comes from is that. And so you have a bit of it here in Luke. We'll kind of blow through that here real quick. But if you want to see, the cool thing about it is, is that Jesus took a walk through the temple mount all the way to the Holy of Holies with his Lord's Prayer. 
And if you want to know more about that, I, I encourage you, go back to the May 28th podcast when we spoke about Matthew chapter 6 and listen to that and look at the notes. It's all online, leavener.com. If you go to Community of Believers and under Teachings, you can look for it right there. But let's look at what he said right here in Luke chapter 2, which is very similar. He said to them, whenever you pray, say this. Now, I don't think Jesus was saying, say exactly this. He says, this is what it looks like to pray. He says, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. If I'm going to stop anywhere in this and reiterate, it's probably right here. When Jesus says, and forgive us our sins, here's the big issue. When I say, I don't pray for forgiveness of sin, it kind of freaks people out because obviously what we just read right, right there is what color. It's red, red meaning Jesus said that, so if Jesus said that, that's what we have to do. But let's read it in the context of the whole thing here. Has Jesus died on the cross yet? No. Jesus has not died on the cross yet. And because of that, this is what we call a pre-cross prayer. I call it that. That's not in the scripture. It's just before the cross. Because here's what I know. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Like, forgiveness hasn't occurred yet. And you're sitting there like going, well, they slit the throats of the animals and made sacrifices yearly at the temple. The priests did that. And they asked for a covering of their sin. This is what we call an atonement of their sin. It just covered. Guess what? It didn't forgive. It didn't forgive their sin. All the, the blood of the bulls and goats and everything, it didn't happen. Forgiveness didn't occur. It only occurred when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, and how many times did he die on the cross? One time. How many times did he forgive sin? Once. So when I was eight, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin, and he forgave me of my sin that one time. Everything that I had done, everything that I was doing, and everything that I was going to do, he died one time, dealt with it one time. Guys, everything that I'm doing right now that's sin, which is in my own strength, if I'm up here teaching in my own strength, it's actually sin that you're looking at. It can even be a good thing. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, both good and evil were bad. Think about that one for a second. So even though I'm doing a good thing right here, I'm teaching, if I'm doing this and it's just all rusty, you're looking at sin. But here's the deal. Jesus has already forgiven me. Look, I, I don't want to do things in my own strength. I really don't. 
I trust that he's doing it here today, and we'll talk more about that here in just a second. So when Jesus says, and forgive us our sins, he's really saying this. When I go to the cross, this, this prayer right here becomes obsolete. You say it one time, and you're forgiven. So now when I pray, watch this. So now when I pray, Lord, thanks for your forgiveness. Thanks for your forgiveness. I still repent. Well, watch this. I still repent. That means I change my mind about the bad choices that I make. I still do that. I still make bad choices. I still sin. That's on me. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven completely. And when I do bad things, it goes against my whole nature. And I say, Lord, I trust that you're going to fix this in my life. And I move on. I move on. He says, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. That's pretty natural if you're forgiven, right? <laughs> like if you receive the gift of forgiveness, it's pretty natural for you to forgive others. And do not bring us into temptation. And then... Uh, our our one of our one of the small groups that I uh, participate in on Thursday just did a thing on prayer, and we had this discussion about do you have to pray continuously about the same thing? Do you have to pray continuously about the same thing? Like like if if I pray for Taylor uh, to become a fireman, do I just have to do that once? I mean, God heard it. Trust God with that. Trust God with Taylor. But watch this. Verse 5, it says, He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside. He didn't even go to the door. The person requesting the bread came to the front door, knocked on the door in the middle of the night, and said, I need some bread. And the man inside says, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. And my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Now, if you understand Middle Eastern culture, that's a huge deal. Because they were always expected to allow guests to come in, no matter what. But now this man says, no, it's too late, I've gone to bed. And Jesus says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, in some of your translations it says persistence, but because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So what has occurred here? Knock, knock, knock. Can I have three loaves of bread? Nope, it's too late. Knock, knock, knock. Can I have some bread? No, it's too late. Knock, knock, knock. Can I have some bread? Please. And this continues until the man gets up. Why? Why? Because the person in the middle of the night, 
shameless as can be, and with boldness going in the middle of the night just as persistent as can be. And it says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. How many times is that taken out of context? You see, it goes with, what is this? It's a parable. It's a parable. In other words, now he's standing in front of the Pharisees, he's telling a parable, and they don't get it because it's typically about them. And he said, just keep knocking, just keep knocking. What what if this whole group right here focused this week just praying for Taylor? With shameless boldness, with persistence, just for the next 24 hours. What happens? It says in verse 16, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be open. What father among you, he's talking to the Pharisees, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? If your kid asks for something, you're probably going to give it to him. You're not going to give him something nasty in return. Or, if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion? If you, then, who are evil... (laughs) Jesus just called the Pharisees evil. If you then are evil, if you wouldn't even do that, you would be good to your son, how much more will my heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Like, if you guys are just rotten to the core and you wouldn't do that, think about what my Father would do for you. It would be much greater than what you ever thought about. He's nailing it. Like, you know, occasionally I like to get in there and just stir the waters, the whole religious waters. Jesus is in there just cranking it up. He's in front of these Pharisees, and he called them evil. And he told them this. You're quite the opposite of God. You do this, My father would do this. And then, one of the discussions I had this week is, what more could you want? What what more do you need? Madison, it's your birthday today, but do you realize you've got everything that you need? Probably going to get some gifts today. But do you really need them? According to Ephesians 1.3, it says that you have everything. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And what more do you need? And then he says in verse 14, 
Hmm. Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. Can somebody in here, this is audience participation, can somebody in here tell me what the significance of that sentence right there is? Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. What is that? Yes, Ryan. It's a messianic meaning, miracle meaning what? It's never been done before. And so why is it messianic? Yeah. If anybody did this miracle, if anybody drove out a demon that was a mute, he would have to be the Messiah because it's never been done before. Well, it's already been done once. And Jesus did that earlier. This is like the second time that he's done it. And the reason it's a miracle, watch this, it says, when the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowds, in some of your translation, it says multitude. When it's the multitude, you know the whole Pharisees are there along with the disciples. It says, and the crowd were amazed. They were filled with awe. Why were they filled with awe? Because they knew, based upon Pharisaic teaching, that if anybody could heal a demon-possessed mute, then they probably were the Messiah. Probably. It's good, probable cause because it's never happened before. Because the Pharisees, they could cast out demons, but what they would do is they would look at the person and they go, what's your name? And the demon would speak and they would call that demon out by name. But if the person can't speak or hear, you can't do that. But Jesus did. Jesus cast the demon out of the mute and he accomplished a messianic miracle for the third time. And then he says, but it says, but some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, think about this for a second. If there's a demon-possessed mute up here, one, you guys are freaking out already. And if Jesus comes along and he casts that demon out, you two are amazed and you're in awe and you're just like going. But watch this. When that awe has like settled, what are you doing? You're rejoicing. You're pretty stoked about what you just saw. That's the Messiah. But the followers of the Pharisees, they immediately accused him of doing this under the power of Beelzebul. There was no rejoicing. The dude just got a demon cast out of him, and you think everybody would be happy, but they want to sit there and condemn Jesus for doing something good. That proves right there that the multitude, the crowd, took on the belief system of the Pharisees, the Jewish nation. They had turned against Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 16, it says, And others, as a test, were demanding a sign from heaven. Now we're going to test God. <laughs> That's crazy. Step back. We're going to test God... Show us a sign from heaven. In other words, you're, you're showing us signs from hell, is what they said. 
Show us a sign from heaven. Talk about accusatory. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself fails. He said this to the exact same response the last time that he cast a demon out of a mute, back in Matthew chapter 12, and gave the exact same response when they accused him of doing it under the power of the devil. This is crazy. Why, why would, if I'm doing this under the power of the devil, right? and a devil is inside of this person, a demon is inside of the, this person, why would I cast him out? <laughs> that seems kind of crazy, right? If me and the devil are on the same team, I'd probably leave the demon in the person. Like, we would be united. We would be on the same page. But obviously, we're not on the same page. This is a house that is divided. If Satan, who is also divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? If it's going to be divisive like this, how does Satan ever win this game? It says, For you say I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? He's looking at the Pharisees and like going, look, we're doing the same thing. We're both casting out demons. So if you're going to accuse me of doing it by Satan, you must be doing the same thing. Why do you think what you do is better than what I do? Are you crazy? How do their works differ? It says, for this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Jesus is saying this right here. Satan is powerful. But I'm more powerful. In a society where Marvel and DC are just reigning and people want superheroes in their life, there isn't a greater superhero than Jesus Christ who comes in, who comes in and says, look, I believe that you're in a battle. I believe that Satan is powerful, but watch this, I'm more powerful. Anything he can do, I win. In the DC Marvel, who always wins? The good guys. It says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Can you, can you imagine just for a second Jesus just eyeballing the crowd and saying that? 
Like he's literally walking around saying, anyone that's not with me, you're obviously against me. And anyone who does not gather, you're running people off. He again is like pointing the finger at the Pharisees. And he's saying, look, if you just stand here, watch. If you just stand here and you're indecisive and you don't like want to make, make a choice, you've made a choice. If you're not gathering, if you're not gathering, then you're not on my team. And he says that for a reason. Watch this. He says, When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest. And what did he just do? He just cast a demon out of a mute, right? And he's saying, That demon is wandering around right now. I told you the other week, it's like, we really don't understand spiritual warfare. We really don't. But he's saying this demon is looking for a place to rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. Now, there's an implication here that Jesus just cast a demon out of a mute. And the implication is, if this man doesn't choose to follow me, the one that just saved him, it's going to be bad for him. It's going to get worse. Because that demon's going to come back. And it's going to be multiplied. Yet in the same sense, this is a foreshadowing of what has occurred. John the Baptist has already come and said that the Messiah is coming. Then the Messiah actually comes, and he's cleaning house right now. And if they don't listen, if they don't listen to Jesus, then it's going to get worse. And based upon what we know in history, it got worse. A lot worse. In 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, and inside that temple by the Romans, 1.1 million Jews were killed. It got worse, people. It got worse. So whether Jesus was talking specifically about that man or he's talking referring to the Jewish nation. And then, as I read that, some of you get stuck right here on this. Let's just say you take Jesus out of the history books. How much of our history... Katie, I'm going to put you on this someday. Do research. How much of our history was impacted by Jesus' life? Like, I could sit here today, and I could spend time here today, and you could say, how has Jesus impacted our society? And I guarantee you, you would say education, you'd say family, you'd say job. You, you could come up with all these different things, and we could really talk about the impact that Jesus has. But just what about our world history? And then verse verse 27, it says, As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, 
Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. You got to love that woman. She's thinking about Jesus' mother, right? Oh, she must have been a good lady. She must have been a good lady. And you know what? Religion will rest on that verse right there. But watch what Jesus says. He says, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus was not disrespecting his mother. But he was saying, look, I'm separating myself from earthly things, and I'm connected with my father. That's who I'm connected with. And you ought to do the same. He says keep the law, right? <laughs> and now, you, you saw that, right? And those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's te- this is pre-cross. He's teaching the law. You've got to keep the law. Jesus says keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. Why was he telling them to keep the law? Because he knew they couldn't do it. And he knew that they were going to need a Savior. Anything that he could do to point them to himself as the Savior and the Messiah. And then it says, as the crowds were increasing, Luke wrote this down. Luke was very specific. And so the numbers game was important for the disciples for some reason. Let's tell everybody that the crowds were increasing. But Jesus really didn't care about that. It says, as the crowds were increasing, he began saying... This generation is an evil generation, demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, remember, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of Syria, and Assyria was to come and attack the northern kingdom, and Jonah's like, "Ah, I'm not going to Nineveh. Those people are going to destroy us, according to prophecy. They're evil people. It says, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. What was that one sign that they were going to see? He says, they'll see the sign of Jonah. What was that one sign? Resurrection. That they were going to see him raised from the dead. You're not going to see any other miracles because you've been cut off. I'll do my miracles in private with my disciples so they can learn and know how to do this. But you guys, you're only going to see one more miracle, and that's the miracle of Jonah. Remember I said, and I'm sorry to ruin your story, but I believe that Jonah actually died in the well, big fish, whatever it says, and that he was resurrected when he was spit out. It makes sense to me. And you're going to see that the only miracles they see is Lazarus raised from the dead and Jesus raised from the dead. It says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. Based upon history, we know that Queen Sheba, who was from the south and represented the Gentiles, was so impressed with King King Solomon that she came up just to hear him and she believed in God. Because of what Solomon was saying. So even the, he's saying even the Gentiles have it better than you have it when judgment comes. Because even they believed. 
And now they're going to end up judging the Jewish nation. It says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment. And with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Even the evil men of Nineveh repented of their sin and came to know God because of Jonah. And now there's something even greater here, and you guys can't even see it. He says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, the whole body is also full of light, but when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. You see, the the brightest sun can't even enable a blind man to see. But, if a man comes to know God and can see the light and has the light inside of him, everything changes. Even though you may not be physically able to see, you have the light of God. It says, take care then. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. I promise you, if you figure this thing out and you're living this thing, People will see the light in you and it will be evident. I was at Starbucks Friday night and the barista, I saw the light. She was different. Wasn't overly attractive, but I was attracted to her just because of her light. You can see the light in people. Now watch this. Verse 37. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. A Pharisee, one of the lawyers. So he went and he reclined at the table. They laid there at the table. It says, when the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. <laughs> you remember that, right? The Mishnah with Brent coming up here and reading how to like wash your hands and everything else, well, Jesus didn't do it that way. Why? Because the Mishnah was the oral law that was written by the Pharisees, not God the Father. He didn't care about the oral law. But obviously the Pharisees did. And why in the world would he, this Pharisee be inviting Jesus? Because he's trying to find something to accuse him with. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. The Pharisees were considered religious people. They have a tendency to draw their students to them personally. Like it's important to be the teacher of many disciples and that they follow you. And if that's the case, then they have to be on their game. And when I say they have to be on their game, their behavior has to be good. (laughs) Like, if I want to get a bunch of people here at this bar, I have to look like a pastor. I have to act like a pastor. I have to have good behavior. 
hang around me with a while. <laughs> My behavior is not all that great. I'm not concerned about that. The Lord's concerned about my behavior. But watch this. It says, Fools, don't he who made the outside make the inside? Didn't he who make the outside make the inside too? The same God who created the outside also created the inside. The inner person. Now, I close with this, and you can finish the end of the chapter. On your own. That means you have homework. But watch this. I, I'm assuming, uh, I love what Bob, Bob Warren teaches in this. He says, like, there's, there, there's five stages of growth. I get it. I go to 1 John 2, and I teach three stages of spiritual maturity. But B- Bob teaches, like, five stages of growth. When you, when you all were born, you were born dead. You were born spiritually dead. You were born heathens. You had a sinful nature. It was easy for you to sin. No one taught you how to sin. It's just the way it was, right? Everybody in this room was born that way. You were born separated from God, a heathen. And then stage two is this, is that you went to church, you got religion, you maybe read the Bible, you may have listened to a message, you heard the Ten Commandments, you memorized Scripture, you learned to pray, you do all these things, and... It was all based upon what you do. It was all based upon what you do. And then stage three happened. Stage three happened was this, is that you realized that religion wasn't the ticket, that it wasn't going to get you anywhere, and the only way that you get there is that you believe in Jesus. And you receive salvation. And then you just kind of like sit and wait for Jesus to clean up your life. Okay, I got Jesus now. Jesus fixed this. (laughs) And then there's the fourth stage. There's the fourth stage where you come and hang out at Levner. And we teach identity. And you figure out that you're holy. And you're righteous. Forgiven. A saint, child of God, an heir to the throne. You're adopted by God. You learn all these beautiful things and you go, yes, he's made me holy on the inside. Now I just got to go and get my behavior right. Yeah. I'm good, I'm perfect, I'm redeemed. I just got to work on my behavior. The outside, the external. I got to get it to line up. And even though you sit here and go, I know my identity, you put this spiritual unrest upon yourselves. And then there's the fifth stage. You know your identity. You know you're holy, righteous, redeemed. And you get to the end of yourself. Like I've tried and tried and tried and tried to get my behavior to line up with who I am. 
How's that working for you? And you go, okay. I guess I'll have to believe what I'm reading. I guess I'll have to believe what the Spirit's telling me. I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to rest in you, and you're going to take care of my behavior. <laughs> Look, I struggle with that right there. I struggle, you know, I, I hang out, I, I try to hang out in five as much as I can, but sometimes I'm in four. It's a beautiful thing when I can just live life like God intended. Lord, you need to do this in my life because I can't stop doing it. You heard it here this morning from the stage. Now I encourage you to go and check it out in the scripture to see if I'm lying to you. But I'm telling you, God is now responsible for your behavior. And when I believe that, I can rest. That, my friends, is what Sabbath rest is all about. That, my friends, is trusting the Lord to not only perfect your inside, but to perfect your outside. Perfect the external. Lord, that's my prayer. Is that you will... (laughs) You will allow me and my friends to just rest in you and trust you, to trust your word, to trust your life in us. So much that that's all we desire. That that's all we desire. Lord, that's my prayer for my friends. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.